0: So you played Wolves of Mercia. I did play Wolves of Mercia. So Rowan talked about it on our podcast last season. And I went to a game night with friends recently and I brought it. And I was so excited to play Wolves of Mercia. And then I realized I would have to learn the rules of a game, which we've established on this show. Sounds like TV static to my ears. Yeah.
1: Have we really talked about that a bunch? Because y- it's baffling. Well, it's not baffling. I actually totally get it. You're amazing at playing games and really don't enjoy learning the rules, which I think people who are less involved in games wouldn't understand the difference.
0: It's that mental block of like, oh, I've got to learn this and, and be on and figure it out. And it's it's being on and mentally thinking in a different way than playing games are. So, I looked at the box for Wolves of Mercia and knew I wanted to play it. And so I sent a quick text to my friend Rowan and my friend Spencer and said, How difficult would it be to teach me the rules of Wolves of Mercia? Genuinely thinking, you know, how difficult would it be? Is this something that can be explained in five minutes or is this a more complicated thing? And I didn't answer because I was out in the background. You were out. Within minutes, I get a text from Spencer that says, give me five minutes. And then he FaceTimes me and explains the entire rules of the game and even does it in a way, which is my favorite thing. I didn't have to lie. I didn't have to play a role. I got to be the game master of the game, which meant I got to watch all my friends scheme. And I didn't have to stress at all trying to scheme along with them, which truly makes it one of my new favorite games we've played.
1: Tracy, I think we've discovered your ultimate role in life. (laughs) isn't it god isn't that role like effectively god yes
0: it was great because i rarely dm in our friend group in any type of situation so it was fun to get to be the one playing god i love that for you i'm concerned for the rest of us (laughs) (laughs) no don't be concerned i'm a kind and benevolent god oh are you let's start this (laughs) podcast hi i'm rowan hall tracy is god (laughs) hi i'm tracy harrison i'm god a kind of benevolent god. Your words. And this is Willing in Fable,
1: the Mount Olympus of podcasts <laughs> that brings you original retellings and in depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. I don't think I can start the podcast that wonky as the first episode of season
0: four. We're in season ah! four, baby. I think <laughs> it's the best way to start season four. I love it. We're on season four. We're on season four. We have done a hundred episodes. Welcome to episode 101. That's so many episodes. It's so many episodes. But each week we research a topic from history <laughs> or mythology and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you would like to support the show, think about giving us a review. It's a really great way to help new folks find the show, and we appreciate you taking the time to spread the word about our podcast that we have 100 episodes of. Speaking of reviews, can I read a review that we got on Apple Podcasts? Yes, please.
1: All right. It says, Tracy and Rowan draw you in and make you feel like you're a part of a kind, nerdy family. This podcast is infinitely fascinating, comforting, and inspiring. Tracy and Rowan's stories and banter have both brought me to tears and left me breathless with laughter. This podcast has inspired me to be more confident and start revisiting my old creative writing inspired by and retelling mythology and folklore. I cannot stress how amazing and intelligent these two are, as well as how sensitively they approach darker topics and other cultures. All this is to say, thank you, Rowan and Tracy. Keep creating and sharing. The world is a better place for it. M21.
0: So I saw this review, and I think I was having like a day. You know when you're just having a day? I
1: don't think you were having a day. I know you were having a day.
0: (laughs) This review was so sweet, and, and the part that really stuck out to me was that we have inspired someone else to pick up writing again and to fall in love with that medium, and that really struck a chord in my heart. It's...
1: Yeah. It, oh, it's a, a shame that words are failing me on a podcast. Um, it, <laughs> it makes it feel like a creative writing club almost. And it yeah. also, I just think of all the times that writers that I admire have spurred me back to my own work. And the idea that someone said that we did that for them on the internet, uh, and then we got to read about it. Mind blowing. It's, baffling.
0: Yeah, because I find it I find it so flattering because I get really inspired by things that I read that are different than what I know how to do. You know, when you get into a rut of when you're creative, if you're doing art or um, writing, you can kind of get into that rut of I I lean on my skills, I lean on the things that I'm used to doing. And then something sparks that inspiration that makes you want to try something completely out of your comfort zone. To to the idea that we could be that for someone else was what really got to me.
1: Yeah, it. I don't know. I've read it more than once on Mm -hmm. on a couple different days that were spicy, and I really appreciate it. And and truth be told, when you review us, it does make a difference online with people finding the show. But also, it just makes us feel gosh
0: darn good. (laughs) Or, you can support the show by going and finding your great-great-grandmother's cookie recipe and recreating it. Maybe bring along some friends and family while you do it. Eat those delicious cookies straight out of the oven Mm. and have a wonderful day. Or you can just keep listening to the episode, but no matter what, we are so happy to have you here.
1: (laughs) So we've never done an episode like this one before. We have not. We've been asked a couple of times by listeners and also people we know to do super cuts of stories, just mm-hmm. the stories from episodes. And we've never done it before. I don't exactly know why.
0: <laughs> I don't know either, other than it was nice to have this little break to sit back and kind of revisit the old stories because... During our seasons, it's pretty much go, 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 move forward. What's the next thing? How can we improve? What can we try new that we don't always think back to what we've done? So, this was a really fun exercise for me to get to go back and explore what we've created already.
1: Yeah, it was really, uh, it was really informative going back and listening to work that I haven't visited in a while. Because the thing about making art is that you consume your work constantly while you're in the process it's just all of the time to the point that you're like oh I hate my own painting (laughs) my own writing my whatever Mm -hmm. so by the time it's out I know I usually take a period of like that doesn't exist I don't once an episode's out I don't acknowledge it but you and I do both consume our older work because you have to you have to know what you've done and and learn and this show is now we're entering year four Mm
0: -hmm. so we've
1: changed a lot over time we have and I don't think we've really taken stock of that in quite this way ever
0: before so Rowan why don't you share with everyone what the theme of these stories are
1: uh (laughs) that's kind of you because you picked and curated this theme um (laughs) but it I did. Get, I could never. Let's be honest. I could never. Okay. So our episode today is a, a supercut of wholesome monsters that we've done on this podcast. And it. I remember when you suggested this as an option and I went, great. None of my stories are in here. I'm out. That's awesome. Do your thing, girl. <laughs> And then that wasn't how it went.
0: No, no. Two of these are yours. And one of them is one of my favorite things you've ever written, which we will have a lot of discussion about.
1: You say that all the time. I love your writing. I love it's... you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love you, too. I I just really love... I, I know it's one of those things where it's like every... The most recent thing of yours that I've read or listened to is like my new favorite thing that you've ever done. But... <laughs> For these episodes, I very much pushed for one of the stories to be in here because it, without revisiting it, still stuck in my mind as one of my favorites. Yeah,
1: yeah, that'll be, that'll be fascinating. Uh, But
0: first up, (laughs) it's you. First up is one of my stories from episode 26, Monster Mash. We're talking about the story of the squonk, everybody.
1: Yeah, and this is one of the most referenced creatures, beings, I think we've ever covered. People talk about the squonk all the
0: time. They do. And so, for those who don't know, the squonk is the Pennsylvania state cryptid. That's where we're both from. Yes. This creature is canonically wet, warty, and weeping. I love him. Um he hates his own reflection and because this creature was so pitiful, he tugged on my heartstrings and so I wrote a story about making him some soup. And in this recording, you'll actually hear Rowan interrupt me to comment on the fact that I'm telling an aggressively wholesome story. Did I really? Yeah. <laughs> All right, episode 26. It's on nights like tonight. When the air is chilled by an incoming storm and Granny feels the ache of it in her bones, that so she always stands in front of the stove and makes soup.
1: You evil bitch. You made a story
0: with a grandma and a squonk. Listen, I needed to make myself feel better. This friendship is over. Why? It's <laughs> <laughs> too many emotions. No, it's all good ones. I don't do sad things. Alright, <clears throat> I grew up in the woods of Northern Pennsylvania in a small but cozy cottage that my great-grandfather built in the woods. My family has lived in this house since my granny was a little girl, and for a long time I never thought to wonder why she did the things she did. I never questioned it as a child. Parents and grandparents often do things children barely understand, let alone question. In fact, it wasn't even until I got older that I really started to notice the habit at all. That's when I noticed that she didn't just do this ritual on stormy late summer nights, but any time the weather was unbearably cold or particularly harsh. Without fail, each time, my granny would pull herself up from her favorite chair, every bone in her small body seeming to crack, and walk her way over to the stove. Once the soup was steaming hot, she would place it into a large mug or bowl and walk straight out the front door with it and put it down on the porch. She always kept soup in the freezer or the fridge, and if we ran out, she would immediately make more. It never made sense to me, but I just assumed it was because of a hardship in her early life. Maybe she'd gone hungry as a child once and was always prepared just in case that happened again. Why she felt the need to take the soup for a walk outside in bad weather, that was beyond my comprehension. But once I did notice the odd behavior, it began to irk me more and more. As Granny got older and her body grew more frail, my mother began picking up the habit per Granny's request. Pull the soup out of the fridge or the freezer, place it on the stove, and heat it until steaming. It was always the same soup, a vegetable minestrone of potatoes, onions, celery, carrots, and beans. Once hot, it went into a bowl and was walked straight out the front door and put on the porch. Finally, when I was 13, I demanded to know what was going on. I was basically an adult now and I knew this was not normal. Why did we always put soup on the front porch when the weather was bad like some crazy people? What were they doing, hoping the weather gods would take the soup and make it suddenly stop raining? None of my friends' families did this, so why were we doing something so weird? My granny burst out laughing at my tantrum, and my mother just stared nonplussed. Granny told my mother that it was time I heard the story. But my mother replied that it was just a silly folk tale and that all of this was ridiculous, but granny insisted that I should know. I resisted the urge to ask no what. I was afraid that any more outbursts would get me sent to my room. So I sat on the love seat opposite my granny and noticed that she looked so small in the light of the fireplace. The warm glow reflected off the seemingly translucent skin of her slender fingers wrapped in the knitted blanket on her lap. She began her story. When she was a very little girl, my great-grandfather built the house that my grandmother, mother, and I all grew up in. Things were different back then. If I thought we lived in the middle of nowhere now, this is practically the city compared to what it was. Granny used to run around these woods with her brother from sun up till sundown without a care in the world. Folks would try to warn them of monsters in the woods, but that only spurred them on to explore even more. So one day... My great-grandfather took Granny's brother into town, and my great-grandmother sent her outside to do some chore or another. She quickly found the task boring and went off to explore on her own for a bit. She went jumping and climbing and running all around the woods for a few hours before she eventually got herself into some trouble. She had just climbed up a very lovely-looking tree when the branch underneath her cracked and fell, with her right alongside it. Granny doesn't remember the fall, just the sudden pain in her leg when she hit the ground. It took all the courage she had to look down, and when she did, she knew immediately that her leg was broken. She tried to stand, but she couldn't even move, let alone get herself off the ground. She was stuck on the ground, in the mud, in the middle of the forest, miles away from home. She was scared, cold... And alone, and without knowing what else to do, she burst into tears. It was in the midst of her weeping that she heard a noise in the brush beside her. She whipped her head to face the sound and let out a squeal of surprise at what stood before her a hideous, slimy creature with sagging skin and small warts on its body. The creature let out a little yell just as she did upon seeing it. It dashed back behind a bush, shaking in surprise as little droplets flung from its loose skin. It had a small snout like a pig and a rounded body that ended in a nubbish little tail. It was too wide to fit behind the bush, so its ears and sides poked out from the edges, clearly visible to Granny. It just stood there, shaking for a few moments before Granny realized that it it wasn't trying to hurt her. She called out to it, this time in a gentle voice, asking it to come out of hiding. Slowly, the creature came out of its ineffective hiding spot and made its way towards my grandma. It had large, round eyes filled with wet-looking tears, and a trail of liquid followed as it walked. It approached my granny slowly and cautiously. All the while she gently urged it forward. Hello there, little one. You're just as sad and scared as I am, aren't you? What are you doing out here? The creature didn't respond to Granny, but its sad, large eyes looked over her. It noticed her leg, the ankle now swollen to a large and angry looking mass. I'm hurt, she said, as if confirming what the creature seemed to already know. Could you... could you help me? I can't make it back home by myself, and I'm afraid I'm rather stuck here otherwise. The creature was surprisingly quiet as it moved towards my granny. It hesitated before her as if it was afraid of what might happen should it come too close. She reached out her hand slowly so as to not scare it away, and when she touched its skin she was surprised by the way it felt. It felt similar to when she and her brother would pick up toads in the woods. Although it was slimier than a toad, but the feeling wasn't unlike the small creature's. She was surprised. She expected it to feel worse based on the trail of liquid that followed the creature, but it wasn't as bad as she expected. The creature leaned into her hand and then moved forward and shuffled its round little body under her arm and pushed up off the ground to help her stand. She wobbled for a frightful moment before finding her balance and resting much of her weight on the creature's back. You did it! I'm actually standing! Oh, you magnificent creature, you did it! She exclaimed this in pure joy, and the creature, clearly delighted by her response, let out a sort of honking sound. It was a mix of a squeak and a low honk that caused Granny to let out a laugh. What an adorable laugh you have, a squonking little sound. That's it! I'll call you Squonk. How does that sound, friend? In response, the creature wiggled slightly and made more of the honking laugh, clearly pleased. Squonk it is, Granny declared. Now if you would please help me walk home, Squonk, I'd be ever so grateful. The pair hobbled their way back to the house in a slow but steady process of hops, limps, and jumps. When Granny arrived back to the cabin, her mother was at the front door, clearly worried about her missing daughter. She rushed forward, scooped Granny up in her arms, and held her close. It took her mother a long moment to notice the creature, but when she did, she looked at it with concern and appreciation rather than fear. Great-grandma came from a time when you respected and appreciated the creatures of the woods, and you did not accept their help without offering gratitude and something else in return. She did not question the creature's presence. Instead, she offered it a hearty thanks for helping her daughter. In fact, once she had granny settled inside, she went over to the stove and poured some of the soup she'd been making into a large bowl and brought it outside. Squawk was hesitant at first, but eventually made its way over to the bowl of delicious food. As soon as it realized what was being offered, it scooped up the bowl and scurried happily back into the forest just as the sun fell below the horizon. The next morning, a perfectly clean bowl was left on the front porch. Over the years, Granny learned that on nice, warm days, Squonk preferred to spend its time alone in the forest. But when the weather got bad or turned cold, she always left out a bowl of warm soup to help the creature out and it always left the bowl by the front door come morning. She rarely caught sight of it again, but she always knew it was there. Sometimes it would even leave little gifts along with the bowl, such as a shiny rock or a particularly pretty feather. As Granny finished telling me the story, my mother handed me a bowl of hot soup. She whispered for me not to take the story too seriously, as it was just a folk tale passed down through generations. Still... She suggested I put the bowl outside anyway. At least the raccoons might enjoy a nice meal, and it would make Granny happy to see me do it. So I got up and took the bowl outside and placed it on the edge of the front porch. It hadn't started raining yet, but the sky was growing darker by the minute. I sat on the wooden swing, staring at the bowl of soup for a few minutes while waiting for the sky to open up and start a downpour. When I first saw the pair of eyes glinting in the fading light, I assumed it was a wild animal who caught scent of the food. But I was wrong. Out of the tree line came a creature I couldn't have imagined if i tried. Loose skin hung around its body in wrinkles like an overweight, hairless cat. A small, upturned snout sat below large, wide set eyes. It had small warts along its body, and every single inch of it was covered in a wet-looking slime. I hesitated when it saw me, just as it did when I laid eyes on it. We stared at each other for a long moment before I spoke. Squonk? Is that you? My granny told me about you and how you helped her. Thank you for what you did. My mother doesn't believe you exist, but... I can see that Granny told the truth. You don't have to be afraid here. We're your friends. I promise you will always have a friend here. With those words Squonk came forward, took the bowl, and rushed back off to the woods. As it left I noticed that a small geode sat where the bowl had been. I picked it up and walked back inside, and as soon as Granny saw what was in my hand she smiled. Hm, Squonk likes you, she said. I think we'll see more of it from now on. I hope so, I replied, turning the geode over in my hands. It sparkled in the warm light of the house. I like to think I made a new friend.
1: (laughs) Okay. The squonk story Mm -hmm. has what I consider to be the four hallmarks of a Tracy
0: story. (laughs) Okay, all right. I have four hallmarks. This is exciting. What are the four hallmarks of a Tracy story?
1: One, it's wholesome. Yeah. It's cozy. It ends well. It's adorable. It's wholesome. It's good. Two, there's a grandma. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was about to challenge you to be like, I don't write about grandmas that often. I do. Uh, I love a grandma. You do. I do. I do.
1: You write about grandmas frequently and even the characters that aren't grandmas are kind of sometimes still grandmas
0: because i am sometimes still a grandma and you write what you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) she's not wrong three family rituals you love a family ritual and then four because they're related food oh yeah yeah you love a family ritual with food too but like the molasses flood has some of that Oh my god, you're totally right.
0: We were just talking about the molasses flood. We were just talking about the molasses flood. This is fun to do because we dug through so many of our old stories that I also found some trademarks of Rowan storytelling. Uh-oh. And, and that was cool to dig into. Your stories are very, um, they sort of weave themselves in unique ways and everyone has the through line of a consistent character, but that character is always very different. Mm. Um, and then there are just... The, the difference is that, you know, we obviously un, not, not the happiest endings I would throw in there as a Rowan Hallmark. You love a good, sad C'est story. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say your writing has this air of otherworldliness to it That is very grounded in reality. And I don't know a more succinct way to put that.
1: Mm, That's interesting. Okay, because I think of your stories as being like bedtime story vibes. Mm -hmm. Um, Although the bed is in a cabin on the edge of a very scary wood. Right. And magic is real. Uh, That's where the bedtime story is being told.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And I love that place and I want to live there.
1: Yeah, I... I just love the squonk because when we have monsters and cryptids, you and I tend to take kind of a weird look at them just because monsters are a really fun opportunity to do that. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Crack's Dragon when when we exploded a dragon. Um, (laughs) Even Kappa, which is a very like specific myth I felt like you let yourself really dive into that that's another family centric story that
0: is another family centric story that has food because cucumbers play a big part in that story (laughs) (laughs) and there's a ritual yeah a family ritual
1: Mm -hmm. about interacting with the kappa huh I may need to branch out this season (laughs) Don't even get me started listening to my own work. But anyway, I love The Squonk because, and, and that's one of the reasons why I, I think I asked if we could start with it once you pitched it, because it's just, I think when people think of your writing, they think of The Squonk.
0: Yeah. I, I've said it before in the podcast, but I'll say it here. I think the reason I lean in towards these kind of more wholesome stories, consistently having a happy ending, uh, rarely putting anything too tragic into my stories. One, I tend to know that Rowan will will take that side of storytelling. And <laughs> so if I want to explore it, the door is wide, wide open for me. But I don't feel the need to explore it just so that our podcast has a, a difference in storytelling or a different perspective. And the other side of it is I'm not necessarily drawn to that. I I'm not the kind of person who finds catharsis in really sad films or horror movies. I just live in those feelings for a while, and then that bums me out. And so when I write, I like to live in the feelings of joy and triumph and success and love instead of sadness and heartbreak and, you know, those kinds of emotions. And so that's what I get drawn towards, and that's what I like writing, because it leaves me as the writer feeling better for having written it.
1: You like type one fun. Fun I while do. it's happening, fun later. And I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast because we've talked about it in our own lives, but you like type one fun. You love those like bright moments, which is mm-hmm. one of the things that I love about you. I love type two fun. I like sad things for fun purposes. Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, yes, you do. And and you find great enjoyment in that.
1: It makes us good co-hosts. Yes, so by that token, actually, we're going to go back to the same episode, episode 26, so early in our time mm-hmm. podcasting. That episode was Monster Mash. I covered Gargoyles, and I was not as wholesome as Tracy. Thank you. <laughs>
0: this, this one is not, I would say this one is not very um, unwholesome. This is a really good example of a story in which you take that sense of unreality and ground it into something that is very consumable. Hmm. in the way you describe monster and his perception of the world because it is such an inhuman perception but one that i as a person connect to i loved this story so much that i drew fan art of your character after it that's how much i loved this story
1: monster's just my little guy i love him so much and i i don't know if listeners loved him as much as we did but i'm still very dedicated to him
0: i am too i love that boy
1: One might never realize it now, as there are bright, delightful worlds to look down upon in the palm of your very hand. But there is a place above the to and fro of the city in which time stretches out into a sweet, slow forever. Farther than your initial intuition can parse, with a craning of your neck, you will find the skyscrapers of stone that stand as markers on the little blue line you follow wherever you need to be. On one particular tower, Notre Dame... Perch legions of wild-faced creatures, carved of stone and frozen in positions of warding. They scream at the sky or growl at faraway lands. They guide gallons of water away from their home in protective repetition wings and claws and teeth and eyes so wide and brows so deep that their expressions pierce the very idea of fear. Above the unceasing beating of the world down below, like frantic minnows caught in a raging flood, these beasts stand firm in an impossibly human anachronism of eternity. For them, every raindrop falls in unfathomable slowness to whisk away the very molecules of their stony existence. Somehow, the erosion of time feels not unlike waking from a deep sleep. One particular creature, with a dog-like dragon face, massive clawed paws, and Thick, seemingly leathery wings, appears as if he were trying to push and separate his way from the wall itself. Half-formed, it seems that, should another millennia of fair weather pass, he might manage to extract the continuation of his self from the nearest blocks of limestone. Hind legs, a long tail perhaps. Mm, But that would take another few centuries still, and it would be just as easy to go on without the swinging appendage. Gargoyles have a very different understanding of the world than you or I. They are smart, the majority, not even due to any particular gifts. But so long watching the world is bound to teach you a thing or two— but those things are quite different from what you or I claim to know. For example, this gargoyle has no real use for a name, but he's learned that names are what beings are called. He thinks that he would like being called one day, and since he's heard the word monster used so much in reference to him, he's adopted it. The word sounds important, And it makes the young people get loud with what they call laughter. Or even screams that lead to embraces from bigger people. For the small ones, loud is often good. For the big ones, it's always bad. When people have water streaming from their faces, it's a very bad thing indeed. But when the water runs from his, they say he's operating correctly, which makes the people bare their teeth toward him. Another good sign he's learned. Monster doesn't understand why the people also call themselves he or she or they. But he noticed long, long ago that the he people had all the power. And Monster certainly feels powerful, so... It must be the truth of the words for himself. When Monster was first created and set into Notre Dame, his gaze was tilted toward the distant horizon. He could hear these exciting sounds below, but he could not see them. So over time, inch by fractional inch, the beast lowered his head, a movement so minute as to become stillness. He thought long and hard about how he might continue his very important duty of protecting his home from draining water while still getting a look at the noisy things beneath the walls. When he finally managed it, Monster found his way to peer down at the flocks of people. It's not uncommon for stone statues to move in this way, it's a bit of old magic some humans can still do. With the time it takes to work with stone, the care that an artist shows, and the layers upon layers of magnificent imaginative belief imbued into the resulting form, it's no surprise that they are bestowed with beautiful life. Every sculpture you can imagine now has Diligently made adjustments to their form so that they might live out the richness of their own eternity. How lucky for the sculptor to give and then receive perfection in progress. You'll also see how the personality of each creation comes out with much influence from their creator. This is especially true of gargoyles who are as varied and moody as any gathering of people. The gargoyles and the grotesques and the chimera might chat for unceasing hours if only the wind would blow words through their open mouths more often. Or they could find a way closer to one another to pass the time in safe, together sort of stillness. These figures use an architecture of loneliness to support the vast building they share. But then, Monster met a family of birds. One year, the gargoyle couldn't remember when, a family of birds came to nest on his head. He'd recently slipped out of the fine netting that covered the cathedral for as far as he could see in any direction. No people rushed to stuff him back inside, so with a view of the wide, uninterrupted sky, Monster was overjoyed to discover a pair of the soft, fluttering beings dancing in and out of his vision. And like a breath, they settled on his head and made a home. Their weight was barely noticeable, but distinctly warm— It felt completely unfamiliar to the tooth-bearing beast, and he wondered, day after day, if this is what quickening was. He understood, in a new way, that there was cold, just as there was warmth. Soon, there was more of these delicate bird sounds emanating from their unseen roost, smaller even than the pair he was familiar with. The gargoyle wanted desperately to look up at them, but moving his head would take longer than the bird's lifetime ten times over, and to turn his gaze would be to toss their home toward the ground. After a few years, he'd only just begun to learn their language. It was very fast, you see. Like, the people of the ground, the birds, they flickered and and tattered like hard sleet on glass when they spoke. Monster understood the language of eternal things. Sun, stone, moon, time. It's a slow speech that makes translation very hard. He knew generations had come and gone, for the pairs of birds that came and went were familiar but different over time. So little by little, he opened his mouth wider. This way, the birds would always come home. They could find shelter from the sun in his maw when it was hot and stay on his head high above the gushing when the river of rain ran through him. To Monster, their return and their children's return sounded like, Thank you. One day, that seemed the same as so many before, Monster directed his attention to the activity occurring on the tip of his nose. The large birds were encouraging the small ones to leap into the sky. It was always a bit of an ordeal, but never lasted long. He knew now the sound of their joy when the air first lifted the young ones toward the sun on their very own wings. Then, in a moment so fast most gargoyles would never even notice it in their stillness, the smallest bird leapt and did not fly. But Monster was practicing that quickening that he felt when the birds were nearby and every atom of his being was focused on the soft creature as it fell toward the loud ground. And the monster of stone caught it. The action was shocking. There was a groaning like thunder and a crumbling of dust, and the very building around him protested. Monster never knew that such quick movement was possible, and as soon as it was done, he could not remember how he even managed it at all. But there was the little bird, flustered and small and safe in the outstretched embrace of his paw. The little bird flew away not long later. Birds are meant for flying, after all. The next rainstorm, Monster understood what it meant when people rained from their faces. He felt overcome by elements which welled in every space his stone could hold. He decided then, that he would never lower his outstretched paw. He caught the flightless bird destined for the fast, horrifying ground, and the small, quick creature of softness stayed in his horrifying claws, safe in the slow above, until it could fly. And after the bird flew, it came back again to build a nest this time in his embrace it found another bird and now they kept their family right there so close before his wide stone eyes that he could know them speaking in confusing sounds and actions but so very close he began to understand the birds in a new way through their soft pressing to his cheek and their attention to his cleanliness and their confident weight when they slept unafraid. Monster knew, with only one arm against his home of Notre Dame, that this was the beginning of his end. He felt, for the first time, the inescapable pull of... To the ground that all of the fast creatures know, but he never moved his outstretched arm that held the nest. What the bird said to him in its tender, quick way, he would say, strong and slow, for every moment that eternity allowed him, I love you.
0: So the way that you weave the words in this story to express the length of time that Monster lives is one of the things that is the most impressive and effective in this story to me. Every time that I come back to it, you find a way to communicate the concept of time in a way that I have not seen anyone else do, and I love it.
1: Here's the thing. You're being so kind saying this. You're not doing the call me out version. But the call me out version is I write about time so much. And I
0: didn't (laughs) know that until we really did this big look back. You do write about time a lot, but it's I find it endlessly fascinating because it is not a consistent perception of time. It's the perception of time from creatures who live for a second or creatures who live for millennia and what that feels like and how that looks. But yeah, see, so I think you do the way that I, I would say I have an interest in families and rituals. <laughs> you have an interest in, in death and time.
1: Put it on our crypts, ladies and gentlemen, the willing and fable <laughs> crypt. Monster reminds me of my one of
0: my favorite d and characters, Pants. Oh my god, Pants. I love Pants, and I never even got to play with Pants.
1: Pants is a war-forged robot who just wants to be a person. Uh, he, he, in the world that he was created in, robots aren't viewed as, like, as sentient beings uh, with thoughts and feelings and, like, personhood. Um, and he is a soldier, so he knows that people wear pants Because Mm -hmm. robots are not allowed to wear pants, so he calls himself pants, and he's on a quest to get pants so he can be a people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. I love it. Um, In a campaign I played once, Jamie played a character who was very similar, where every single thing that he interacted with that he loved he took on as a name because he came from a collective where he didn't get his own unique identity. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we were done with that campaign, he had the longest name that included like coffee. And um, I think like his first name was Andrew or something where it was like that was the guy that rescued him. And then he loved coffee and he loved jackets and it just kept building and building and building. All the things he loved became part of his name. That's so cute. It was a really cute campaign.
1: I love Creature's... And and my gargoyle is a really good example of this that are on quests for personhood and mm-hmm. trying to
0: define themselves. Uh, and in this story in particular, the way that Monster chooses his own gender and the very specific choice to include that and the thought process behind it was brilliant.
1: Thank you. We do love to talk about a gender. Um, we do love a gender. And having... The perspective of something that's human is a really great way to point out, at least within the scope of the story, without malice, the idea that, like, oh, well, the the boy people have more rights, so I want to be a boy.
0: Mm-hmm. Which, <laughs> <laughs> that hits different. It um, does hit a little different a few years later. <laughs> but he also chooses the name Monster for himself, which I found a particularly um, emotional moment in the story to me.
1: Mm, Really? Why? Tell me more.
0: The idea of taking the thing that people call you and adopting it into an identity that you can be proud of is really special.
1: Yeah, I think that that's something that we see uh, in the queer community a lot, especially online. I think minority communities are put in positions where they either feel that they have to do that or that's something that feels really useful to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just being on the internet, you kind of see that happening. You do. Uh, and there is something in the opportunity to choose your own name where you can really take an action that will serve you. So something that feels rebellious or something that feels comforting or something that feels strong or soft. Like You, you really have the choice to to kind of not only define yourself in the name, but define yourself in what the name does for you.
0: Yes, you get to reform who you are as a person through your name and how you interpret it and how you want others to interpret it.
1: And the same goes for nicknames. I had a conversation recently with a friend about nicknames. Mm -hmm. And nicknames can be so fun and helpful and charming, and they can also be so
0: awful, such a punishment. Did you ever have many nicknames? I know people tried to put nicknames on you growing up and you were very anti shortening of your name.
1: Yeah, I don't usually let people call me nicknames. I don't really answer to it. And I don't let people call me shortened versions of my name. But I do have a nickname that I've gotten, I guess, during the last I don't know, six months that's kind of since this like period of when i had to move away and the podcast got wonky um i acquired the name captain the nickname and now some of my friends call me captain which is like such a good nickname
0: that is good that's a good one
1: uh and actually weirdly i can't believe i'm doing this this is kind of a good transition into your next story (laughs) yes it is (laughs) i'm sorry everyone (laughs)
0: That was beautiful. Okay, the next story that we are going to share with you all is from episode 23, Stories from the Sea. And this is the story that I wrote about the Kraken. This story was inspired by the Jonathan Colton song, I Crush Everything, which is about the Kraken trying to give hugs. Oh, I forgot that it came from that. It did. I forgot too until I went back and re-listened to the story and I talked about it in that episode. But I took that concept of... Why is the kraken trying to give a hug? What would that look like? And then it turned into the kraken as a mother figure seeing giant ships in the ocean as her little babies that are just being reckless. So she's grabbing them and hugging them and pulling them down into the safe depths of the ocean.
1: Okay, so we have family Uh, we have a mother figure.
0: I do love a mother figure. I love a mother figure in storytelling. I love a mother figure who will burn the world down for her children. And we talked about that early on in the podcast in the Tiamat episode. There's something very interesting to me about that concept because I think it stems to the idea of a mother who will do anything for her children as the ultimate ally.
1: Hmm.
0: There is absolutely nothing that could get her to turn her back on her own children when she would burn the world down to protect them. And that's really fun because in that scenario, then there is no boundary that won't be crossed.
1: I love a mother figure that is not born out of classic motherhood, like Mm -hmm. made baby, had baby, am mother. Taking on a mothering role in society, not even through children or not even through... Uh, the children that you are raising but kind of this wider understanding of what motherhood can look like and so I really like it when you explore topics like that like I feel like I can't remember (laughs) this is so difficult because you and I talk all the time I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast or off but when we talked about Inanna and all of the roles that women can have that people can have and how so often in a Christian perspective it's easy to forget that like goddesses can be so multifaceted that's something that we talk about all of the time on this podcast and in one goddess you can have someone who is both mother and murderer
0: (laughs) yes yeah well same with Tiamat Tiamat and Inanna are that duality of life giver life taker Inanna is the goddess of love and war you have Tiamat who starts out her own story as this mother and ends it as the villain. Mm-hmm. I find that endlessly fascinating.
1: So, uh, we got a mommy giant squid.
0: First and foremost, I am a mother. They say all sea monsters are my children, but I take offense to that term, monsters. My children are not monsters. They are beautiful creatures living their lives as best they can. I care for all of my children, and I want them all to be safe and happy. Which is why I cannot understand these silly, foolish children of mine who float so close to the surface. They ride above the safety of the water like they are asking for death to welcome them into its embrace. As a mother, it pains me to see them so pointlessly risking their lives by choosing such a dangerous path. I know they are my children. I can tell it by their size. They are long and rounded with bellies that stick below the surface of the water and long, straight arms that stick up from their backs. They have smaller creatures that seem to live on them as well. These creatures... I, too, will care for, as any friend of my children is a friend of mine. I admit, sometimes I may be a bit rough or a bit harsh, but I'm only doing what is best for my children. When I see them gliding carelessly across the top of the water, heedless of the danger it presents, I can get a bit frustrated." After all, the sun is a dangerous thing, the air outside the water is toxic, and who knows what monsters live above the surface. So when I see one of my children choosing to be so foolish, I rush to their aid. I swim to the surface, and yes, maybe I say a harsh word or two, but it's only to let them know that I care about their safety. I'll swim beside them for a bit, and they usually ignore me. So then I'll pop my head up to see what they're up to. Sometimes this is all it takes, and they come right over to me, but oftentimes they ignore this as well. That's when I take matters into my own hands. Or tentacles, as it were. I come up out of the water to let them know that I mean business, and I wrap my arms around their body. I want them to feel how much I care when I hug them, but... Also, that I am not playing any more silly games. They're usually stiff and unrelenting, but so are many of my children. I suppose it's a trait they got from me. Often, the tiny creatures that live on them will bite me, but I don't mind. They're too primitive to know what I'm doing is for the best. These are merely parasites on the backs of my children. Nothing to concern myself with so I let them bite and claw at me as I hug my child and start to bring it back down to the safety of the water. I drag them down under the surface of the water, pulling them, sometimes against their will, back to the safety of the ocean's depths. They may not appreciate it now, but children rarely understand their parents when they're young. As I drag my child deep... Deep into the depths with me, I remind them that I'm only doing what's best. Like I said, I am a mother, and I love all my children, even the foolish ones with little parasites that bite. And I will never stop trying to keep them safe, even from themselves.
1: I remember it having to be cut out of this episode how hard I laughed when you first described the little people on the ships as like parasites. (laughs) Just little biters.
0: Yes. (laughs) Because if you're living on this cosmic scale and you think the giant ship is your little baby I would think that you as the Kraken would see the sailors the same way we see barnacles on the side of a ship. Just this nuance. Making this little... things
1: big really changes the ball ballgame. Mm-hmm. Like being that big. <laughs> so That's... big that the ocean seems like a
0: confinement. Ooh, yeah. Ah. Cosmically big. That is incomprehensibly large. And that was really fun to play with because then how would you see people? You don't care about them. They're irrelevant. As long as they're not bothering your child, they can stay there. But then when you start dragging that your baby boat down into the depths, you're not really worried about the little parasites crawling around on it.
1: Just a little hug. It's just a quick little hug. Th- Keeping it, you safe. Because you read it in mom voice, mm-hmm. it made it even better when you were talking about essentially people drowning. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're too big to care. It. Yeah. And I think we forget that we're not the centers of the whole universe. We're not? Oh, no, Tracy. I'm so sorry to be the one to tell you this. What a bad day for me, huh? Golly. (laughs) Oh, shucks. In this story, even though you took a more comedic, wholesome kind of just fun light approach to it, this feels like a continuation of the legacy of women as monsters. We've talked Mm -hmm. a lot about that in relation to the Greek pantheon. Medusa uh, Scylla this this kraken depiction reminds me so much of
0: Scylla I would love to write a follow-up to this where Scylla is like the sister of the kraken in a like spiritual sense and it's like Aunt Scylla and what that looks like how fun would that be
1: well Scylla also is filled with rage at people in a way that this kraken is not which is you know, you can talk about that for better or for worse. Like, why are these monsters always women? Why are they always upset? Why, why are they man killers? Buh, buh, buh. But to have Scylla, who is a sea monster that's like a man killer ship destroyer, and then have the Kraken that's also a man killer ship destroyer.
0: Mm-hmm. But just because just you want to give us some love. And here's my thing. And this is why maybe we'll cover Scylla at some point, because what if we twist Scylla's story? What if people like us say that she's a man killer ship destroyer because we don't know her story or motivation? I mean, I know in theory we do know her story, the transformation, <laughs> all of that. But <laughs> playing around with it is where we get to have so much fun on this podcast of, hey, what if we twist the narrative? Yeah. What if we know something you don't know? And then we share it.
1: That is our, our kind of favorite tack to take Bo joke and in- applied
0: <laughs> okay now on to the story i'm very excited about
1: yeah we're going back in time even further this episode is number 20 it's cryptids it's where i covered mothman Hmm. and you know what i'm not gonna say anything <laughs> okay. we're just gonna, gonna we're just gonna right roll it. the tape <laughs> The following is a series of cut-together recordings left on the Point Pleasant Register voicemail. Um, hey. Uh, I'm Daniel. Uh, I've lived in Point Pleasant for my whole life, except college. Uh, my platonic life partner Kristen, uh, she bakes those epic cupcakes for the festival every year, the ones that raise so much money for the animal shelter, uh... Anyway, we used to get your paper delivered before everything switched to digital. Uh, That's why I wanted to call in to set the record straight about Mothman. I know, I know, that's like the most unoriginal thing to ever mention in Point Pleasant. But just like, hear me out because my perspective is really valid. And I don't think a lot of people are looking at this situation as being sharing this planet with all creatures. So, I grew up with Mothman. Mothman. And I don't mean grew up with the stories of Mothman. I mean, I did. But I grew up with literal Mothman. He's my dude. He's my roommate. I knew him when he didn't even know how to use the oven yet. And it's honestly such a gift to have gotten to know him as a man and not just a moth man. So first off, I think it's pretty sexist that you all decided Mothman is a dude. My dude is a dude, but your mothman, the one those gravediggers and teens and everyone saw, was a moth mom. She, her pronouns are also applicable to the cryptid community, and I think it's such crap that we all just assume the first one we see is male, and then maybe that male gets a female because we just force heterosexuality on them. Like, for the record, I knew a family of Bigfoots that had two lady moms, and... There's definitely a ton of ways to have a family in the cryptid community. But back to Moth Mom. She and Moth Dad and my moth dude had just moved into Point Pleasant and they weren't the best at blending in yet. Even the most basic glamour takes years of witchcraft study so you can understand the problems they faced. But Moth Mom is super caring and she just wanted to check out the area to make sure it was safe for her family. And she did it at night so people wouldn't freak out. She straight up ran into those gravediggers because she thought they were grave robbers. And she's a mom. Of course she busted up that make-out point stuff. You can't just be pulling your shenanigans and get caught by someone's mom and say to the newspaper that you were afraid for your life because you were going to get grounded. You drove over a hundred miles per hour, dude. You're lucky she followed you back to make sure you were okay. (sighs) Now, we gotta talk about that horrible Silver Bridge disaster. First of all, our local moth family had nothing to do with not maintaining critical local infrastructure, That was a horrible tragedy, and I don't think it's cool to try to blame it on some being that you don't understand just because you're scared. Some people definitely did see Moth Dad that day. He also has to commute to his job because, like, capitalism and cryptozoology are not mutually exclusive. When the bridge collapsed, he tried to help do some good, rescue some people, but being a very large flying creature is distracting, so he had to bail so that all those rescue workers could save lives. After that day, the family really tried to lay low since Point Pleasant was going through so much, and they didn't want to scare anyone when the whole town was so sad, you know? Super considerate. Obviously, I wasn't born yet. Moth folks mature at a way slower rate, so my dude was a kid for a minute. Okay, so. After that, I don't really know who cited who when, but I just want to add, they never stole that dude's dog. Like, I won't speak for the whole paranormal creature community, but the Moth fam has always had at least one or two cats for as long as I've known them, and they love those little fluff balls so much right now they have two black cats because like black cats are less likely to get adopted which is so thoughtful of them Kristen helped match the family with the kittens because like she works at the shelter anyway the cats names are strickler and keel because like how sick nasty is it to name your pets after the bros who wrote books about you anyway i don't want to take up too much of your day and thank you so much for listening to this super cool I just want to update you on a few things because I think it will make some people who are scared feel like way chiller. First off, Moth Mom and Moth Dad moved away. They lived for so long, you know, so they had to like mix it up a little. Obviously, there's more than one moth family, so it's totally possible some of the other sightings around the world are other moth people. There's also a super cool crew of moth dudes in Chicago, and they host the best movie night, so, like, check that out if you're ever in the neighborhood. Mothman, my moth bro, still lives in town. Uh, I'm not gonna tell you where, so just, like, chill. But they all come into town for the festival every year. Like, the whole family. It really makes them feel so good. You have no idea. Like... How cool is it for them to be able to just walk around as themselves for the weekend without anyone spazzing out because there are so many people in costumes? So, keep an eye out, I guess. Oh, and y'all better watch out, because Mothman and I are going to dust you all at this year's pancake-eating contest. We are practicing. Uh, so... Cool, yeah, um... Take care of yourself, a uh, reporter person, and uh, like, happy Halloween.
0: I don't like this story. I love this story. <laughs> the day that I can listen to this story without laughing out loud wherever I am is going to be the saddest day of my life. I think this is a brilliant retelling of Mothman, and the voice you used makes me so happy. <laughs>
1: So Mothman, my moth bro, was born of playing Ah Dang, Mothman Won't Move Out, mm-hmm. which is a TTRPG one shot. And we played it on Playtest Pals. I played with uh, Kaylee Bray and Sage Ryan. We were streaming and Mothman was a roommate. That's how the game is played. And I played this guy named Daniel who is a skater bro who's just like trying to be woke you know um i love it so much (laughs) but behind the scenes tracy and i had a lot of back and forth on this because she pulled it because she's the best and i went oh god no i don't like this i don't think that it's worthy of being clipped and replayed and you pointed out and we, we talked for a while but It is actually interesting to then talk about, like, we write so often that not every single thing we've ever written is our favorite.
0: No, it's not at all. And we specifically ended up putting this in the episode because I feel so strongly about it from a positive perspective. I love this story. It has stuck with me since episode 20 It's one of my favorites. I think it is a unique version of your writing style and you don't love it. And the idea of discussing that and discussing different perceptions of the writer versus a consumer was something really interesting for us to dive into.
1: Yeah. One of the things that this podcast has allowed to happen in my life is that people talk to me now more often about writing, which is really cool uh, in my personal life. Mm hmm. And one of the things that I hear a lot is people being nervous that their writing won't be good or or getting caught up in it needing to be perfect. And you and I basically, for better or for worse, just decided three years ago that yeah. every week this show is coming out, whether what we wrote was good or not.
0: Yeah, it's sort of the ultimate exposure therapy, isn't it?
1: It really is. And I would say... unequivocally, without a doubt, that it has been so good for us as artists. Yes. And I liked this story when I wrote it and when we put it out. I, I was very excited about it. And it is just, I think over time... I don't know whether my writing is actually better or if my experience with my own writing is just better because that's mm. that's distinctly different. It is. The process of writing versus the result of writing. But hearing it now, uh, unlike most of our stories where I don't necessarily feel compelled, I just want to retool it. And I usually, I seriously, when I listen to our stories back, maybe I'll go, oh, I wish I'd picked a different word, but I rarely feel the need to, the compulsion, I should say, Mm -hmm. to go back.
0: What would you change in this if you could?
1: Gosh, I don't know. And I think that's part of the problem. I'm just so consumed by not enjoying it, (laughs) which is like, again, I, that's one of the reasons why I pushed against putting this on the episode and why you really advocated for it to your credit but like to come on the show and say like I don't have a plan for how I would do it differently I don't have some greater wisdom for myself even I just want to do it differently mm-hmm. I'm just living in that frustration because to actually rewrite the story I would have to get through that frustration and figure it out and I will not redo this story and so I don't actually need to I just Sit in my own grumpiness.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is your prerogative as the writer to have those feelings about it. But as the consumer and the listener and the reader of this story, it has held up for me. And one, I mean, it's held up for me. I think it's funny. I think it's quirky. It's creative and it's intelligent. But I also see where it is so different from. The style of writing you've grown into and the way that you sort of sink into stories. That's kind of the way I describe the the style of writing you have. You are immersed fully in the characters, the story, the points you're getting across. And this one is much higher level. And it's just a lo- little bit lighter. And I could see that being a sort of dissonance with the way that you write now.
1: It kind of reminds me of my story that I did for the Haunted Dolls episode. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of similar. It exists in this real world, someone talking about their experience in the real world at, like you said, a service level. I also am not a huge fan of that story, of all of the things I've written over 100 episodes. Uh, I don't dislike it. It's just not one that I would ever list off. And I think now in going back through this, it's important for me to remember why I change my style, like why it's valuable for me to do things like that and go to a writing place that I don't normally go. Mm -hmm. Because a friend mentioned that they really like that haunted doll story. And I was like, what are you talking about?
0: (laughs) That's so true that another big learning lesson in this podcast is that we don't get to control how people react to what we put out there. Once we put it out there, it belongs to the audience. And something that we might not even necessarily click with the most as a writer could be the most impactful story for a listener out there.
1: Yeah, that's really what death of the author is. I think on the internet, there's a lot of misunderstanding of where the phrase death of the author originally comes from. And that is that when you are consuming literary works, you can then give criticism about the work, critique without being concerned about the author's feelings. It is not supposed to be The author is entirely irrelevant. Uh, Their work stands 100% alone. And it's not supposed to be,
0: let's crucify the author. Not at all. It's more of the author's intent is a second tier of importance to the reader or the listener's experience of the story and their interpretation.
1: That's a much better way to say it. Uh, And we see that a lot now with people reacting to jk rowling who for the record is awful and we don't buy her books or anything that she's attached to go find a different fantasy world
0: there are so many but
1: because that is in the cultural zeitgeist right now that conversation really extends we saw it a lot with lolita yes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, and it reaches even further to that idea of like you must be a bad person if you write about bad things
0: which is fundamentally untrue and ridiculous we need ways to explore the world that we live in and writing and storytelling is a fantastic way to do it so you might not always be writing about the greatest thing I know I'm not someone who always writes about the big bad evils in the world but that's more of a personal choice because I like to sink into other things but to explore the darkness in the world is so important and valid
1: there is also an advantage to the fact that you and i write every week about different topics and that has freed us up so much to not have the weight of having to put every good idea you've ever had into one piece of writing yes i encounter that a lot with people who are writing books because it's so many pages it's so much time
0: it's so much time, and it feels like you need to. It's like you said, you need to cram all of your good ideas into one story. It feels like it might be your only chance. If it, you know, if it doesn't go well, you might not get a second book. As opposed to what we do, which is consistency.
1: One oh one, baby. One
0: oh one, baby. So
1: that's our first story supercut. I guess
0: story time is probably story a better time. word for that. Story time. <laughs> Yeah, story time. These are story time episodes. We're getting together and we're sharing stories around the campfire. It's like a little mixtape, but for bedtime. Ooh, I love that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So before we wrap up, Tracy, tell me something good.
0: All right. My something good this week is that while we were off for the podcast, I got the chance to go to New York City with you and Kaylee. And we got to spend time together. And we went to see Company XIV. And we saw their burlesque. Nutcracker show. It was so fun. Oh, it was amazing. They were brilliant. It's Cirque du Soleil meets Burlesque meets the Nutcracker. Uh, It was so much fun, and getting to just hang out with you guys and explore the city was incredible. Um, So that is my something good. It was really, really fun to spend that time with you.
1: It was really easy. It makes me so appreciative of the people in my life who I can just be easy with.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. it. It just felt right and simple and easy to be with both of you and exploring that city plus you guys had both lived in the city so that was fun to learn from you guys because I'd lived in Philadelphia but I'd never lived in New York City
1: the thing that made me really appreciate it was when we were on the train you and I are like in sync we're doing it it's fine but we got off the subway and you were like I have a headache I'm hungry I really need a bite and we just went immediately into a McDonald's, got a Diet Coke and some fries, and just kept walking. And it wasn't an issue. It wasn't a thought. It just was so healthy
0: and fun, (laughs) like well-adjusted. Need snack, get snack. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Need snack, get snack.
1: (laughs) I feel like with other people that could have been such an ordeal.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally see what you mean where someone like doesn't want to voice their needs or their concerns Mm -hmm. and then gets to the point where they're not feeling well. And I was like, No, I have low blood sugar. I need, I just need to pop in real quick. And it was great. And then we, you know, shared that Coke and some fries. What's not to love? Honestly. (laughs) Where is the
1: bad thing? I don't see one.
0: I don't see one. So now, Rowan, it's your turn to tell me something good.
1: So I last week went to the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles, which is one of the best coolest things i've been to in a very long time and as i'm starting this story i'm realizing there's so little i can tell because i would be crushed if i spoiled it for anyone especially Mm. you because you and i already have plans to go when you come out to visit it is well first of all it goes hand in hand with this podcast there it is simultaneously like turning the light on society and making a comment on it and just is an absolute buck wild journey where the entire time you're like what wait no wait what (laughs) no wait now what just over and over again um and it has everything from science to history to art to
0: stories Oh, I'm so beyond sold on this. Real birds? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love birds, so that's exciting for me. I do have some people in my life who are afraid of birds, so it's good to know because some people really don't like birds. Well, the bird
1: thing is very optional, but you can go up onto the roof of this building and have tea in a little garden where morning doves are just hanging out. Oh, we're doing that. Yeah, you'll you'd love it. <laughs> <laughs> um God, I just You know, when you go into a museum and you're reading the curation and you're thinking to yourself, am I stupid or is this badly curated?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but usually it's just me being like, wow, I wish my brain was better, huh?
1: Oh, I really have the audacity. I walk around a museum with the audacity. I'm like, nope, I don't like this. No, you should have focused on something else when you were curating. This is foolish. You have no idea what the artist was thinking. Shut your mouth. And like you, I'm- you know
0: what? Good for you. Don't let white men have all the audacity. You should have the audacity to critique a museum curation.
1: I do want to be clear, though. I keep that between me and maybe my companion. If they want to participate in that, I'm not going to march around a museum and say that. Oh, my uh,
0: God. That would be so funny.
1: But the Museum of Jurassic Technology takes that feeling of, like, am I stupid or is this curation confusing and just runs with it?
0: Oh, I love that.
1: Oh, I love that. So getting out and doing stuff in the world, man. It's pretty nice. Witches, man.
0: Witches, man. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us for episode 101. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend.
1: Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? 101! 101! Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ashe. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. The bloody red baron and Snoopy are having a fucking battle over the top of my house. <laughs>